you're someone who might be here uh, maybe for the first time or maybe you've been, maybe you've come a, a couple of times but still feel like you're visiting with us a little bit, uh, what we're doing here over the course of the year is that we are walking through the uh, large narrative portions of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, over the course of 2017, and uh, what we're doing on Sunday mornings is really uh, a supplement to, it's in partnership with a, a reading plan that our, many within our congregation are engaging with on a daily basis. And so there are these red booklets um, that contain the reading plan as well as some resources and things to help you as you read. We're almost to the end of that red book. We have two weeks left, this coming week and then the week that runs from April 9th to uh, April 15th, and then that red book is going to end, and this morning, our second book is in, it goes from the book of Judges, it begins on April 16th, that's Easter Sunday, and it runs through the book of Esther, they're blue this time instead of red, Uh, we got tired of looking at the red, and so we changed it up, you can pick those up starting today, we'll start in those books in two weeks, so you can pick them up this week, or next week, or you can pick them up Easter Sunday, and if you're reading along with us, you can continue uh, if you haven't started with us, that'd be a good place to jump in, or you could jump in this week. We encourage you to, to do that. On Sunday mornings, we're teaching on the front side of what that week's reading is. So this week's reading is in the middle of the book of Joshua. It starts in Joshua chapter 7. It goes through uh, like Joshua 14, I believe. Uh, I didn't look at it this morning, but I think that's right. And uh, so this morning, I'm going to teach on Joshua chapter 7 and kind of set up the reading for the week. That's the way we've been doing this every week. So if you've got a Bible and you want to open up, We're going to jump straight in this morning. I'm going to start by reading Joshua chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. This is what it says. It says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from there to the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty, or killed about thirty-six of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Last week in our reading, or the, the previous six chapters of the book of Joshua, tell the story of Israel crossing into the promised land through the Jordan River. God parts the Jordan River. They walk through on dry land. They camp at a place called Gilgal. And they go from Gilgal to the city of Jericho. And at the city of Jericho, the Lord gives them this amazing victory that is entirely a testament to his power and a testament to the fact that he is going to be the one who goes before Israel in clearing out the promised land. They, the Israelites march around the city a number of times, and then the wall falls. And the Israelites literally just walk into the city of Jericho, and they're able to take it. And the Lord gave them specific instructions that they were to devote everything in the city to destruction. That included all the people, and last week we talked about why it is that the Lord would ask in the book of Joshua the Israelites to 
uh, wipe out so many people that live in the promised land? Why would he have them do that? We talked about that last week. And this instance, God says, I want you to devote the entire city to destruction. Not only the people there, but all of the buildings, all of the livestock. I want you to take all of their gold and silver and all of their stuff and put it into the treasury of the Lord. And no one is to take anything for themselves. And if anyone ever rebuilds the city of Jericho, judgment will come upon that person as well. And then at the end of Joshua chapter 6, he tells the Israelites, if you take any of the gold and the silver and you keep it for yourself, you will make Israel a place of destruction and a place of judgment. And it's into that that Joshua 7 picks up and says that one man, Achan, kept some of the devoted things. That's verse 1. He took some of the devoted things for himself. And the Lord's anger burns against him. In fact, if we look back at verse 1, it says this, but the people of the Lord broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. One man, Achan, sins. He does what is contrary to the Lord's will. And because of that, the Lord is angry at all of Israel. That flies in the face of our very individualistic culture, that one person would sin and everyone would face the consequences of that. Isn't it unfair that all of Israel faces punishment because one man did something that was contrary to the Lord's command? It reminds me, reading this over the past week and kind of reflecting of it, reminded me of an incident I had while I was at the University of Missouri. I was on the track team there, and we were forced inside due to some bad weather, and so we're in Mizzou Arena. And we hear, we're kind of in the concourses that surround uh, the basketball arena, and we hear Mike Anderson, who was the basketball coach at the time, and he's blowing a whistle and yelling a whole lot. And so we kind of peeked in to see what was going on. And standing in the middle of the court was Mike Anderson and one basketball player, one Mizzou men's basketball player. And he is wearing clothing that's different than the rest of the Mizzou basketball team who is running up and down all the stairs in all of the aisles around the arena. And Mike Anderson is yelling that they are going to touch every stair in that building twice while their teammate watches. Mike Anderson wanted to play a very specific style of basketball. It was uh, helter-skelter defensively. You pressed the entire time. But it was predicated on every individual on the team doing the right thing at the right time. They had to do their job effectively. And when one person failed to do so, the rest of the team felt the consequences of it. And so in this particular moment here in Mizzou Arena... He was underscoring the idea that this is a team effort. When one person makes a mistake, it has consequences for the rest of the team. So that young man watched while his teammates engaged in some cardio. What happens here is that the disobedience, the unfaithfulness, the sin of one individual brings consequences on the entire nation of Israel. 36 men lose their lives. They get routed by a very small city at Ai. What we see, what we see throughout the Old Testament is that the sin of an individual has community impact for all of God's people. 
The Lord has always desired not just holy individuals, but he's desired a holy nation of his people. We see it over and over again throughout the Old Testament. In fact, in our reading up to this point, three times we've seen the Lord make this statement. Exodus 19, he says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In Deuteronomy 7, he said, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. In Deuteronomy 14, it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord. A holy people, a community. The same idea carries over into the New Testament. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God longs for his church to be a holy church, a community of holy people. When we read any single passage of scripture, we need to keep in mind the whole Bible, the entire story of what's going on. We need to keep in mind the entire character of who God is. And so, As we read this, it's worth remembering that God's desire for Adam and Eve was that they would be individuals who bear his image in the world. That what so frustrates and angers the Lord at the time of the flood is that humanity is sinful. And so he floods the earth as judgment for that. It's worth keeping in mind that his desire for Israel was that they would live in a covenant relationship with him. And that they would bear the image of God in the world for His glory. And that all the nations would be blessed because of them. Today, as a church, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then in the collective body of the church, we are to bear the image of the Lord in the world around us. For His glory, that others might come to know Him. And when an individual sins, it has community impact. How does that play itself out today? Well, the Israelites were supposed to go into the promised land and they were supposed to take all the people out of there so that they wouldn't be influenced by or uh, kind of degraded because of the false worshiping and the moral corruption of the people that lived there in the land. And God said, if you hold up your end of the bargain to be faithful and obedient, I'll hold up my end of the bargain, and I will go before you, and I will fight for you in this place. And at Ai, something has gone wrong. God has not failed on his end of the covenant relationship. Israel has, specifically Achan. He's sinned. He hasn't been obedient. So because of that, the Lord allows them to be routed in battle, and 36 individuals lose their lives. Today, in our society, most of the world comes to a view of the church right off the bat that is skeptical at best and probably more naturally is just negative in general. They view the church through a lens of uh, contempt at times. Because of that, When sin in the church becomes apparent to the world, it serves to reinforce this negative view. On a very large scale, when a mega church pastor or very public ministry leader has a moral failing, 
It doesn't just make news in the church. It makes, oftentimes, the pages of our most prominent newspapers and magazines. And the rest of the world looks at the church and says, I knew it. I knew that you were fake. I knew that you're no different than us. That's not altogether different from the type of community impact the sin of one individual has here for Israel. When individuals within the church sin, it makes it more difficult for the witness of the rest of the church. It makes it more difficult to proclaim the transformative power, the saving power of the gospel. Most grievous is that it slanders the name and the character and the image of God in the eyes of the world around us. And it's unfortunate. Oftentimes when someone finds out that you're a Christian and you want to go about sharing any portion of the gospel with them, they likely stop you at some point and say, yeah, but my biggest problem is that Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Now, we're not ever going to live lives that are totally uh, free from sin. But what happens very frequently is similar to what Achan did. And that's that we want to hide, and in so doing, we cause more damage because of our sin. We cause more damage to ourselves. We cause more damage to the collective body of believers. And so what plays out in the middle portion of Joshua chapter 7 here is that Joshua falls to his knees. He tears his clothes and he, he's crying out to the Lord, what has caused us to lose this battle? God, what is going on? And God says, there's someone among you who kept some of the devoted things. And Joshua goes to figure out who that individual is. And so I'm going to keep reading in Joshua chapter 7, verse 16. It says this, Joshua rose early in the morning, and he brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me, Now, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. Notice the words that Achan used to describe what happened. He says that he saw. He saw the this cloak, he saw the silver, he saw this bar of gold, and then he says, I coveted or I wanted them. So I took them and then I hid them. That's a pretty standard pattern for how sin operates. In fact, that exact pattern has played itself out a couple of times in the Old Testament already. It happened with Adam and Eve. They saw the tree and the fruit are the the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent convinced them that they wanted it. So they took it, and then after they eat it, 
What do they do? They hide. They hide from the Lord. Similar pattern plays out with Cain and Abel. Similar pattern plays out with the Israelites and the golden calf when Moses comes down off the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. If you think about kids, we do something that our parents have told us not to do. We try to hide it. You know, maybe you're a young child and you're playing some game in the living room that uh, gets a little bit more intense than you intended it to and all of a sudden the ball knocks the lamp off and it shatters on the floor. And so you like brush the remnants of the lamp behind the couch thinking that mom's never going to notice that the lamp's not there anymore. Right? We, we do something wrong and we try to hide it. This story illuminates two important truths for us. The first is that it's, it's not only in our nature to sin, but also to hide our sin. That's a recurring theme that we see over and over in Scripture. One of the things we've talked about is that the Lord is always present. And so we can maybe hide our sin from the people around us, but we certainly cannot hide that sin from the Lord who sees all and knows all. The second truth is this, that our sin that we hide is often the sin that becomes the most destructive. It ends up being the most destructive to ourselves, to the people around us. It ends up being the most destructive to the collective body of the church. And as I've thought about this truth and this reality, I thought it was worth, I thought it would be worthwhile to spend some time pointing out what I think are the three most common hidden sins in the American church today. There are certainly a lot of these that we could talk about. any number of things we can pursue sinfully and then try to hide. But these three, I think, are particularly prevalent within the church and particularly damaging to the church as a whole. The first is pornography. The sexual ethic of the Bible is clearly defined, and I don't think I need to walk through it all point by point this morning in order to highlight the reality that married or unmarried engagement with pornographic material is sinful. It falls outside of the scope of what God desires for us. In fact, secular studies are increasingly beginning to point out just how toxic the pornography industry is for our society. The reality is that 70% of all men regularly, not just one time, but regularly engage with pornographic material. And what we thought used to be just a thing that was a a struggle for men is increasingly becoming uh, a reality for women as well to where one-third of women say that they regularly engage with pornographic material. 30% of all the data that's transferred wirelessly to our cell phones is pornographic in nature. 30%. More people visit pornographic websites every day than visit Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. As a culture... We seek pleasure and intimacy intimacy in the most artificial and contrived ways possible. More often than not, that's what a person is seeking when they turn toward pornography. Intimacy. Pleasure. We run to these false ways of achieving those things and sinful ways of doing that. And unfortunately, the statistics on pornographic usage doesn't differ much inside the church as outside. It's an epidemic in America, which despite its prevalence, tends to operate in people's lives in a completely hidden sort of way. In fact, I think within the church, 
there comes uh, such a deal of shame and guilt associated with this that men or women feel like if I do struggle with this, it's not that I just don't want to talk about it. It's that I can't. I couldn't possibly ever share this struggle with anyone because what would they think of me? What would they do in response? And so we hide it. We push it down. We keep it in the dark. We refuse to talk about it until it becomes so destructive that we can't help but have it forced out into the light. That's the normal way that that operates. And in my opinion, I think it's destroying the church. In particular, I think it's destroying men within the church, which means that it's in turn destroying families within the church. The second is this, greed. I think that money is the largest idol in America. The Old Testament is clear about the giving practices that God desired of his people. It was the tithe, 10% of all that they had. The New Testament both affirms the tithe and is clear that we should give of ourselves and our finances extravagantly as a response to the fact that Jesus gave his life for us. Unfortunately, the statistics over the last 10 to 15 years can consistently illuminate the same truth, and that's that Americans in the church don't give to the church. The average American Christian gives about 2% of their income to the church. What's also incredibly revealing is that when you look at those statistics, the more money you have, the less likely you are to give. Of individuals in America who claim to be Christian and make less than $20,000 a year, 8% of them tithe. 8% of Christians in America who make less than $20,000 per year tithe. And that sounds like a really small number, but it sounds giant compared to the 1% of American Christians who tithe and make more than $70,000 a year. The average American Christian gives about $17 a week to the church. By contrast, the average American spends just under $15 a week on coffee. Most churches in America are struggling just to keep their lights on and their staff paid. That the reality of American giving makes it difficult for churches to operate, let alone to be able to do with their finances what the Lord would want us to do with those, which is to put them to use for the good of the kingdom. To put them to use for the sake of reaching unreached people around the world. In fact, last year, Americans spent more money on pet costumes at Halloween than the American church was able to give toward global missions last year. That's sad. We struggle to give, we struggle with greed because we want security. And that's a good thing. But we think that our security is wrapped up in our cash flow or the bottom line on our bank account. And so we struggle to give. And we don't want to talk about this particular sin. We want to hide it. We bristle when the pastor brings it up. We say things like, oh, I don't want to go to church because every time I go to church, the pastor talks about money. I've been in this role for 15 months, and it's the first time I've brought it up. If it's your first weekend here, I'm really sorry. (laughs) It just worked out that way. 
the reality is that this is a large sin issue in America, that we get wrapped up in the amount of money that we have, that we get tied up in finding our security and our material possessions or trying to keep up with the Joneses who live next door to us. But the reality is the Joneses who live next door to you might have different priorities than you. And if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and the Joneses have not, you should have different priorities than they do. And the car in your driveway or how big the number is in your bank account shouldn't matter to you like it matters to the Joneses. I think this particular sin has great consequences for the church. I think that the the rest of American society, the non-Christian portion of American society, looks at the American church and says, you're chasing the same stuff I am. We're both doing the same thing. What's so different about that? And so the individual sins of a person begin to have community impact for God's church. Let me dig down below the surface a little bit further. I think the third one that's incredibly prevalent and damaging to the American church is the sin of judgment. We live in a culture that prizes individual achievement and success. We think that the way a person looks, what they do, what they have, how they present themselves what kind of success they're able to achieve. We think that defines their worth. And so for most of us, there's this almost unending running commentary in our heads that's constantly and instantly sizing up the people around us based on a worldly and ultimately meaningless set of criteria. We judge people. The reason we judge them is because we have this longing inside of ourselves for worth, for value. And we think that if we can situate ourselves above the people around us, then that must make us valuable. That must make us have worth. The Bible's clear that the Lord doesn't look on those outward things. Instead, He looks at the heart and He wants us to do the same. He wants us to adopt positions of humility and to focus not on exterior sort of meaningless forms of criteria, but instead to focus on the hearts of individuals and the eternal realities of their salvation. When we judge, we miss that opportunity. When we find our worth in valuing ourselves above the people around us, we can't possibly think of the things that matter eternally for those individuals. And the way that this so grievously affects the church is that if you talk to someone outside the church or you invite someone to come and they kind of say no, oftentimes running in the back of their head is, I can't go into a church because I don't want to bear the weight of the judgmental glances that I get from people who don't know me or don't like the way that I dressed when I got there or think that I've got some sort of huge sin problem in my life. And so our judgment makes it impossible to explain the gospel to people. Our individual sin has community impact. There are certainly many more sins that we could hide that exist within us that we keep secret. I point out those three because I think that they're particularly damaging. And also within those three are longings that can only ever be fully fulfilled by the Lord. The only one who can ever know you fully and most intimately is the God who created you. The only one who could ever provide for you a lasting, eternally lasting sense of security is the Lord. The only one who ultimately defines your worth or the worth of any person around you 
is the Lord. And how he thinks about you or he thinks about that person is ultimately what matters, not what you think about that person around you. What's so interesting to me is that when Joshua brings the entire congregation of Israel there before himself, and they start to single things out, and they bring out one tribe, and then one clan, and then one family, and then they bring Achan out individually. He doesn't start with Achan by saying, Achan, we know that you've sinned. God told me that you did it. You know what he starts with? He says, Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord and praise him. Some translations say, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. We've talked over the course of uh, the last three months that sin is glory stealing. We want to take some glory for ourselves instead of ascribe that glory to the Lord where it belongs. In any of the things that I talked about earlier, whether it be pornography or greed or judgment, if rather than looking to some sinful means by which to bolster our sense of intimacy or security or worth and value, if instead we turn and we allow the Lord to provide us with those things, now we can proclaim the greatness of the Lord and his ability to provide for us rather than feeling like we need to steal that for ourselves. The longings we pursue sinfully and hide shamefully can be met by God fully and then proclaimed boldly for his glory. Joshua looks at Achan and he says, Achan, give glory to God and honor him. If he were to stand before the American church today, I think Joshua would say something very similar to us. Give glory to God. Honor him. Trust his provision. Seek your security. Seek your worth. Seek intimacy. From him and him alone. As we've been reading through the Old Testament, we've encouraged you to look for Jesus in the midst of these things. That the entire story of the Bible beginning to end is the story of God redeeming humanity. He does that through Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament points to him all the time. Well, Achan provides this incredible example to both link back to Adam in the garden and to Jesus on the cross. And so I want to just step through that really briefly. For both Adam and Achan... The sin of one brings judgment upon all. This is what happened when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Don't don't miss the picture of that. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, and there sin enters in when they eat the fruit, and it disrupts the relationship between God and His creation. Here in this story, the Israelites have been brought into the promised land where they're supposed to live in covenant relationship with the Lord, and then sin enters in. And in the garden... When Adam and Eve sin, all of humanity gets a sinful nature. Here in the story of Achan, when Achan sins, all of, all of Israel experiences the Lord's judgment. But it doesn't stay that way. I'm going to read the last three verses, 24, 25, 26 of Joshua 7. It says this, And Joshua and all the Israelites with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned burned them with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raised up over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. 
Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. For Adam and Achan, the sin of one individual brought judgment upon everybody. But for Achan and Jesus, the death of one individual pays the penalty for all. Achan is ultimately put to death. He's stoned for the presence of his sin, and that provides a substitutionary payment for all of the Israelites. Israel is spared because Achan is put to death. His death for his sin puts an end to the prospect of continued punishment and judgment for all of Israel. In fact, in Joshua chapter 8, they go back to Ai and they get a, a rousing and easy victory, like they thought it would be. Jesus' death, though not for any sin of his own, puts an end to the prospect of eternal punishment and judgment for all who place their faith in him. That's the hope of this passage. Joshua 7 isn't just all about sin. It's all about the gospel. It's all about the reality that it's not ever too late to turn away from sin and give glory and honor to God. It's never too late. Whether your sin has become public or whether it's currently hidden between you and the Lord, right now, this morning, there's a chance to turn away from that and turn to the Lord and allow Him to receive glory and honor. You can do that right here this morning. And this is the best part. Brothers and sisters, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then there is no condemnation, no guilt, no shame for that sin. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation eternally before the Father if you've placed your, your faith in Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation or guilt or shame to be carried between your brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't need to deal with it and bear the weight of it in your own heart and in your own mind because Jesus Christ paid the final price and penalty for our sin. And that means we can look to him both for forgiveness and for the power to walk away from it. The hope of the gospel is that God can take our most embarrassing and broken situations, our most shameful and hidden sins, and he can turn them around and use them for his glory. He can provide forgiveness and he can provide freedom in the midst of that. The valley of Achor, where Achan is stoned and buried, that is, translates to the valley of trouble. You brought trouble on us today, Achan. The Lord will bring trouble on you, the valley of Achor. It makes one other appearance in the Old Testament. It's in Hosea, the prophet Hosea. In chapter 2, God is speaking through the prophet, and he's talking about Israel's unfaithfulness and their sin, and then in the middle of it, in uh, Hosea 2, verse 14, he turns and he starts to talk about his mercy and his love. And in verse 15, you can jot this down, Hosea 2, 15, he says this, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Right there in the valley of trouble, there would be a door of hope. I want to present the door of hope to you this morning. I invite the worship team to come on up, and we're going to spend our last few minutes here in worship together. But before you just stand up and sing, I want to present everyone with a door of hope. You might be here this morning and you've not ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the very first time and experienced forgiveness for your sin, whether that sin be very public or very hidden. In the middle of that valley of trouble, there's a door of hope and his name is Jesus Christ. And you can place your faith in him and find eternal forgiveness for your sin. You might be here this morning and you have placed your faith in Christ, but 
inside your heart, inside your mind, you're bearing the weight, the guilt, and the shame of some sin that's been hidden in your life but has had hold of you for quite some time. I want to provide a door of hope for you this morning because the same Jesus that died to give you forgiveness from that sin also died to give you freedom from that sin. And so as we sing and close our time together this afternoon, I want to invite you to spend some time reflecting. And right here, right now, you can pray to receive forgiveness for your sin and step into a relationship with Jesus Christ for the very first time, or you can pray and begin a process of gaining freedom from a sin that's maybe had a hold on your life. There'll be people up here on both sides of the stage. I'll be over here, and then we always have some folks over here who are willing to pray with you after services. They'd love to talk to you about either of those things. You could talk to a small group leader at another time. You could begin the conversation strictly between you and the Lord this morning, or maybe with a friend who brought you here. The encouragement, though, is don't leave this morning and stay in a valley of trouble. This morning's the opportunity to walk through a door of hope. I pray that you'll take advantage of that. So we're going to, you can stand up and and we can sing or you can remain seated and and spend some time in reflection, but we're going to end our service today with a time of worship.